Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm about to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself and Peter Robinson, John Yu, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jane Nordlinger, Paul Ray, James Lilix, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Judith Levy, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but conservatives are very polite and they won't complain. Now, in addition, you can create your own post on our vibrant and lively and widely read in the Corridors of Power member feed on any topic you like, culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members and even attend in-person meetups across the country. And it's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. And trust me, this is a community getting more influential every day. So join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. And now on with the podcast and I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. Welcome to the euphoniously titled Ricochet podcast Glop Culture. That's G-L-O-P, Glop Culture, because the G is for Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. Hi, Jonah. Hello. <laughs> the LA, that is the L-O in the middle, is for Rob Long out in California. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I'm well. And the P is for me, John Pudhoritz, in New York City. This podcast is brought to you by Tonks, the best coffee in the world, delivered to you twice a month. Uh, to get a um, free subscription or to get a, to, to sign up for Tonks, go to the URL tonks.org slash glop. That's G-L-O-P. Get some for yourself. Send it to someone you know who appreciates the finer things. Tonks.org slash glop. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, but I'm John, John since, you, since you brought up euphony, I have to say that there are many wonderful things about that intro, but Tonks... Dot org slash glop is not the most euphonious <laughs> statement. It's true. Well, you don't want your coffee to taste like glop, yeah. but you do want your coffee to taste like tonks. But it sounds yeah. like it sounds like you're doing it in Klingon. Yeah, no one cares how their coffee sounds. That's true. And Klingon, I don't think they drink coffee. On if they on, do, it'd be it'd be uh, it'd be glop, glop slash glop. tonks, though. I believe that. Yes, uh, yeah. tonks. <laughs> um. So, you just said my carburetor is broken and Klingon. Uh, well, <laughs> someone's got to. Well, gentlemen, we are now in week three uh, of the most important story of the 21st century, which is, of course, mayoral candidate Anthony Weiner's uh, conduct, misconduct, marriage, sexting, uh, choice of young women with whom to sext and so on. Seriously. Afghanistan, Iraq, derailments of trains in Spain, right? Uh, the coming, uh, the, the troubles from sequestration, the coming debt limit—all of this pales by comparison 
with the story of Anthony Weiner sexting a young woman whose name, I swear to God, is Sydney Leathers. Sydney yeah. Leathers, who wanted to contact and ha- make contact with Anthony Weiner because she was so turned on by his healthcare rants. <laughs> so my question is, when does the flood hit us again? When when does when God frogs, say you're done? Coming? You're done. That's it. The human race has failed. You don't deserve this planet. That's it. I'm giving Did it you to say the bees. Tuesday? <laughs> the bees. Well, the bees need it because the bees, orders, as we understand, yeah, they build. They 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 don't make a lot of noise. They're uh, they, they produce. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we are. There is a movie called Idiocracy, which yeah, did yeah. very badly at the box office. That Mike Judge, who made Wait, Office Space why, and did Beavis and Butthead, made. Why do you think it did did poorly? Well, it's These a strange movie. movie. Yeah, I mean, just, the movie is no story. Story problems in the movie, all sorts of problems in the movie. But people keep referring to that movie more and more. That well, movie because has more of a cultural impact than it ever had in the theaters. Right. Well, the story of Idiocracy is a completely average guy wakes up 1,500 years in the future to find that he is the most intelligent person on earth because pop culture has subsumed everything. And over the course of 1,500 years, America and the world have become basically full of idiots because the sort of the intelligent don't reproduce and all everybody does is watch wrestling on television. The, 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 the president is always the best wrestler. Um, and I fear that we have now achieved idiocracy roughly 1,500 years earlier than uh, Mike Judge predicted. Well, Anyone have any thoughts on this? Um, a couple of points. First, I think it should be a surprise. I mean, the sort of the fact that idiocracy didn't do well in the theater when it's a movie based on the mass stupidity of the masses, <laughs> the audiences didn't get it. <laughs> and then, um, on the on the larger point, look, I mean, I I don't think I think the culprits here are slightly different. I don't know that that the the mass of society cares all that much about the Wiener thing beyond uh, a couple, you know, some good laughs on Leno or Letterman and that kind of thing. The people I uh, think are more to blame, and here I'm going to take out my bony finger of condemnation and point it in John's direction, are j'accuse, are the people like you. Because this is such a New York story. It is, I mean, it is, it is a New York Post New York Times yeah. both love this story. It involve it, 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 it is dragooning the Clintons into this thing, which is causing this sort of flop sweat panic among liberals. The, the cognitive dissonance about how you can be uh, nothing but laudatory of the Clintons, but con- but condemn the Wieners and Huma. It is a part. It is a. It is. It is a glorious spectacle that, in part, because of the incredible parochialism of New York City um, gets even more play 
and um, I right. don't think we can blame the people on this one. It is it is it is the it is the mass. It is the people at the at the commanding heights of the culture, like John Podoritz in New York City, speaking to us now from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, who are to blame for this one. You and your <laughs> Upper West Side Manhattan cocktail part. Oh no, it's a George Duck. He was forget. Uh, yeah, I, I sort of agree with that. I mean, but I suppose for my lofty perch here with the with the salt of the earth, you know. Uh, with, with, in deep in the heart of America, here in Venice Beach, <laughs> well, um, with your feet uh, up on the back of an intern bent over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sitting on ottoman. an intern. Yeah, yeah, but my feet on an intern. Um, uh, it it well, the only thing I notice is that when um when a Republican, I mean, it's, I know I sound like a, you know I always sound like <laughs> I should have my own radio talk show when a Republican does. This kind of thing—it's a sign of the sickness in the Republican Party. And when a Democrat does it, it's—it's uh, it's, it, the dots are never connected. So you know, Wiener Spitzer and now this, the San Diego mayor here have nothing, are, are in no way reflect anything going on in the Democratic Party. Uh, but uh, a, a couple of crackpot congressmen um, are always the, the voice of the Republicans. So uh, there, I said it. No, no, no well, I made a, I made a, just very quickly. I made this point at some length and. In liberal fascism, that this is a huge problem that it goes beyond the sort of salacious stories of the days where whenever somebody in the past did something terrible, it is an indictment of conservatism or right-wingness or traditionalism or whatever um, if, if, it can all be, if it can all be ascribed to the right, like McCarthyism or whatever. But whenever a liberal or progressive does something bad, it is always – a sign of the the rot or the the problems with America itself. There's never ever any attribution of badness to liberalism writ large, right? So even though like whenever whenever you can't pin it on the right, it is it shows the dark soul of America or the dark soul of right. know, like so this stuff going on in San Diego is about sexism in America. It's not about the Democratic right, yeah. Party. It's about, you know, it's about, you know, these the power or yeah. Yeah, but it's never it's never an indictment of the ideology of, of anything on the left because that we always know is defined simply by good intentions and can never be wrong. I'm I sorry. think I think all of this is 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 very true. I'm more struck by the fact I've mentioned this in, in print before and maybe even here before, but in my neighborhood growing up in 1972-73, same neighborhood that Jonah grew up in, um, there was a uh, uh, a man who went around castrating little boys. There were six victims, um, uh, black and Hispanic little boys, and over the course of about 13 months, and the neighborhood was out of its mind with fear and rage and terror. And the New York Times, this is before Rupert Murdoch bought the New York Post, so the Post was a very sleepy liberal tabloid. And the Daily News didn't concern itself very much with Manhattan because it was an outer borough paper. And I went back and I looked for an article that I wrote about this case. And the New York Times published over the course of 13 months five articles about a serial uh, mutilator of little boys, sexual mutilator of little boys, a couple of whom got killed. Now, that was 1972-73. So the question is, why would the New York Times cover this so little? And my explanation, as far as I can 
divided is that it was impossible in 1972-73 to write about a story like this because it involved parts of the body that could not be named in a newspaper. You could not use the word penis in a newspaper in 19... It would have been considered incredibly crude. You could not describe what had happened because it would be too upsetting to the readership. And then, in a, in a, I think in... in a, and by the way, it, that was very, it was very upsetting to me just... 30 seconds Just ago, hearing about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm not handling it too well either. Uh, no, I'm like, thank God for, I, I, I was, uh, you right. know, thank God for my tongs. Right. Now, it's 2013. Imagine this story in 2013. It would be on cable television 24 hours a day. It would be a front page story. And it, this would be the biggest story in the world. It'd be a plot line on Sullivan and Sons. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday nights on TBS. <laughs> Think funny. Um, no, but I, I, I'm just us. saying, so now it's, it's 40 years later, and we have a member of, former, you know, member of Congress who is sending photographs of his male member over the internet and a website that two days, two or three days ago, actually published the unvarnished image that he sent to Sidney Leathers. And Twitter, Facebook, everyone is making jokes, openly making jokes about this. And it's a to- the tonal change in the culture from, red- from reticence in the name of dignity or squeamishness or whatever to an utter lack of reticence in any way, shape or form is the transformative cultural event of our time. That nothing is now left to the imagination. Nothing is not discussed. Nobody says maybe we shouldn't do that because it's bad for the children. And I, I mean, I myself blame Bill Clinton for this quite uh, plainly because I think the Monica Lewinsky case was the moment at which most of this broke down for the mainstream media because there was no choice but to describe the dress, what happened to the dress, that sort of thing. And so once, once this had to come out and once the Star Report was written with the details, that, that was like a – that was a cr- crossing of the Rubicon that, you know, can, you could, you'll never cross back. Um, and that's another thing for which we can uh, criticize our, you know, the, the ex-president for uh, doing as, as, as president is uh, coarsening the culture the way that he did, even though that wasn't really his intention. But I do think that this is where we are now. And it, 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 the more, and I'm guilty of it as anybody, I make a lot of, jo- I've been making a lot of jokes for the last week and a half about Anthony Weiner, but I do have to say, in part because he should be, you know, Locked he should out. be turned into a laughing stock yeah, and humiliated and, and, and destroyed as a repugnant example of everything that is wrong, you know, with, with our cultural life now, where somebody who behaves the way that he behaves thinks nothing of, trying to use the notoriety that he gained as his vehicle for his comeback. But I do think that, you know, we're paying a really severe price for it. Um, and you, and in, that, in this sense, this is the elites that Jonah was condemning, you know, who are responsible for the coarsening, not the yeah, hoi polloi who are consuming it. They're being, they're, they're simply being, offered it as part of the menu um, of, you know, of, of everyday life. 
And it used to be that the elites would not offer such things uh, as part of the menu. And now, obviously, they're at the top of the menu. So you want to go back to when we, when uh, uh, the New York Times editorial board decided not to cover a, a, a serial killer in Upper West Side? No, that's exactly the problem. Obviously, are you, are, why, previous, are you, why are you in favor of censorship? Obviously, the previous consensus <laughs> had great failings to it, you know. And among other things, it was one of the reasons that people didn't cover political, you know, the the, the personal misbehavior of politicians. You know, bef- you know, in, in in older in olden times, because they didn't want to write about it, because they were discomfited, because you didn't discuss sex in public. Well, also, um, there's a whole realm of things that were not considered, uh, not considered bad. Nothing. I mean, you know, look, what Anthony Weiner did is modern, contemporary uh, rudeness or whatever badness. I don't know how you want to put it, but. It, 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 Politicians were exposing themselves to women, un- un- unwilling women, by the way. I mean, uh, what's her name? Uh, Miss Leathers. <laughs> Sorry, I have to laugh with her. I mean, she received yeah. these happily. But, right. uh, but politicians have been, been pulling down their pants in front of girls uh, for uh, – well, as long as they've been politicians and girls. So <laughs> in a way, we, we just decided at some point – you know, roughly around the John Tower nomination for everybody who's old enough to remember what that was, we just decided that was a bad thing, and then this whole all of this got out of hand. I so mean, or, or not out of hand, but I mean, all of this became suddenly all of this was now swept into the realm of behavior we'll no longer accept, rather than behavior that we will gleefully accept and even laugh about. I mean, what Chris Dodd and Ted Kennedy got up to in Washington D.C. is the stuff of legend. Mm-hmm. Well, so we find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma because we – the mm. horniness of a dilemma yeah. uh, because, we, <laughs> because we – we're living through – we're living in the muck and it used to be that the muck was somewhat hidden from everybody. It was there but it was hidden and now it's not hidden. So that this is an interesting classical cultural question that conservatives always need to deal with, which is, is it better to hide the muck for the greater good? Or is it better to expose the muck because we need to live in the world as it is and not in the world as we would wish it to be? There's always a story of some guy, some normal guy, uh, getting elected to Congress or something, or getting into the first, you know, moving up the ladder, the executive ladder, and then suddenly realizing just how much fun everyone that you know at these levels is having like oh so this is really happening this is going on you know it was always the story of the rube coming to the city or mm-hmm. or going to college or something wait this is the, wait this is happening this is really <laughs> happening um uh i i just so, so i suspect that the 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 in a in a way this is the natural out this the natural sort of swing back i suppose after the uh, uh you know we we had the sort of explosion of free behavior and then, um, frankly, the feminists decided to turn it into a crime. I mean, literally a crime. They they encoded it all into the criminal code, um, and then they then they and then a lot of them got caught up in it, uh, like Bill Clinton. And now we're sort of still kind of wondering whether, well, is that illegal? I mean, or not? Or, uh, or, or, or are all those people just blown smoke? And what I suspect is that they were all just kind of blown smoke. I mean, hearing uh, Ted Kennedy talk about sexual harassment was ludicrous 
was kind of awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I like, I, I, I think you're right. I think you know, I've had this theory about political correctness for a very long time, and obviously, you know, we all think that the the stupid and evil parts of political correctness are stupid and evil, and the the sort of crypto Marxist theory that sneaks into it and all of that is is stupid. But what people forget is one of the reasons why political correctness works to the extent that it does or it's not, that it's not going away is that some significant chunk of it isn't about sort of Herbert Marcuse trying to infiltrate our lives. It's, a, it's, a, it's about people trying to figure out – because now that the old order of traditional roles for women, traditional understandings of sexuality uh, – a lot of racist baggage about the roles of minorities and all that kind of stuff. Now that that's all sort of gone by the wayside and much of it, I say good riddance to, but you know, there were some things like good manners that were thrown away as well. I don't think it was a wonderful boon to society to make it sexist, to hold open a door for a woman or hold, pull out a chair. But anyway, so that stuff all went. And so what political correctness is on a lot of campuses and a lot of parts of America is this often lame, often ridiculous effort to build a new set of manners that people can live with a way here's how you can talk to to other people of other races or other genders in a ways that shows respect and all that and that's sort of because you do need manners in a society a society without manners is basically one where we're all driving around on motorcycles looking to steal you know gas tankers from mel gibson (laughs) and um and that's the sort of tension that we're in is that we – because of feminism and all critical race theory and all these things, we threw away a lot of good things after bad. And um, and now we're trying as a society to grope our way, so to speak, um, back to what passes for civilized ways of, of dealing with one another that show respect to people. Well, that's you know, my- speaking of civilized ways to live, I want to talk to you guys for a minute about Tonks Coffee. <laughs> Wow. Because Tonks That's is our old new... time radio. That was old time radio right there. That's what that Thank was. You. Thank you very much. Speaking because of the Tonks... Lasagna, you know, friends, Tonks Radio, uh, Tonks Coffee. That's right. I'm sorry. Tonks is our new sponsor. And uh, I have to say, I've been sitting here uh, drinking Tonks Coffee, and it is delicious. And it's a great service. They ship it within 24 hours of roasting the beans. Um, and it teaches us a couple of interesting things, one of which is that we always, we remember but we forgot. It reminds us that home-brewed coffee can be just as good as anything you get at Starbucks or the coffee bean or something like that. It's not hard to make a great cup of coffee despite the fact that the baristas are standing there suffering with their toques on and you know spritzing this and spritzing that and all of that. What matters are the beans. The beans are what's important. And that's what you get from Tonks. They ship them bi-weekly. They give you help on the brewing methods. Uh, they get them directly from growers. They follow the tilt of the earth and select the best beans when they're at their peak. Great gift. Go to tonks.org slash glop, G-L-O-P, to find out more. You get a free sample. Then you can sign up for the service. Get your friends a great cup of coffee every morning. Have one for yourself. This is a great thing. It's nice to have a new product to offer people that is so um, yeah. 
high quality and good and yeah. supports say, causes that we believe in, like this podcast. The only thing I would, I would say about Tonks, um, uh, I would ask them to, to do is to include in it – because they send you the beans. You got to grind the beans and, and, and if they can just tell me what the setting should be for you know, the various ways to, to – to, uh, to, I always forget. Like to, when you're – I do French press. So when you do French press, you know, it's because it's the easiest. They're supposed to be supposed to grind them a little bigger. So that's my only. Well, from what I'm told, you can get a lot of information from the, off their website. Tonks is spelled T-O-N-X. It's out of L.A. And once again, free sample, tonks.org, T-O-N-X slash glop, G-L-O-P. If you do They're- that, you'll get a free sample. They'll know you're listening. They'll keep sponsoring this podcast so we can keep blathering to you about Breaking Bad and Sharknado and all kinds of stuff. And let me add one last uh, thing. There is a lot of wonderful information at the Tonks website, and I went to check it out. But I do have to offer one correction from the beginning of this podcast. Wow. Klingons, in fact, do have coffee. It's called Raktagino, and you can have it either iced or hot. And it was a, played a big part in Deep Space but Nine. You, but you can't, you can't get it across the neutral zone. <laughs> and, and, and so oh, if you can get it across You're the neutral me. zone, you are you know, killing me. Tonks would probably oh, follow the rotation stop. of Klingon stop. across I can't the neutral zone. It. You also can't get Romulan ale across the neutral yeah. zone. But if you happen to know, well, of course Dr. you can. Bones you can get it on the Romulan side. You can get Romulan ale on the Romulan not side of the neutral enough. zone. You just not can't. Strong enough. And, all right, all right. We'll, I we'll just don't there. have the will anymore. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't go on. <laughs> all right, so what else are we going to talk about? All right, look. <laughs> we are talking about coarsening the culture, and as it happens, oh. I must now turn to Rob Long. Oh, yeah. Because Rob God. Long, as we may know, as you all know, is the executive producer of Sullivan and Son. Thursday nights at 10 on TBS. Only for think, four more weeks, by the way. Think funny, but four more important weeks – that will spell the difference between genius and disaster. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. Ricochet.com, the home of this podcast. Ricochet member Adrian went to watch Sullivan and Son knowing that it was the work of Rob Long. And he was upset. He wrote, he posts, he posted on Ricochet and he said the following. I literally turned it off after catching no more than one minute. <laughs> One minute that was enough to provide completely uncensored, first the S word and then the V word, just like that. I had no idea you could even get away with that on TBS. I thought that's why people paid to get HBO, or in my case, refused to pay for HBO. Who knows? Maybe I just caught the worst possible episode at the worst possible time. But I, for one, I'm not going to try again. Rob, as a conservative, as a, as a, as a cultural and political and thoughtful conservative, why are you using bad words on television? Justify yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't. You, you could be. Uh, first of all, you could be a conservative and use bad words. You can be a conservative and and, uh, and put on a dirty little show. Um, yeah, just know, check my Twitter feed, by the way. Yeah, it's like that's not that's not a sign of whether you're you know you believe in the, the free markets and free people and, and et cetera et cetera and the, the death of communism um, and uh, the fluoride in the water is a bad idea. <laughs> or whatever, whatever else. Uh, I, I, um, I. It's a. Uh, uh, it's a. I, I actually wrote a response to it. It's in the member. Um, it's in the member section. So I, I've sort of. This is now we've, we've been talking about this for a week on the site. Uh, look, I the show's on at ten o'clock. 
It's a bunch of guys uh, in, in, in a working class bar um, talking the way people talk or the way people talk. Certainly, they, they talk a lot better than I do when I'm hanging out. I, I, my, my language is uh, atrocious, and I'm not, I'm not proud of that. But, and, I try, and I do edit myself when I'm around children or people I don't know. But when I'm around people I know, it's, uh, it's not – you know, it can be, it can be uh, I work blue, put it that way. It's the old show business term. <laughs> uh, and I'm not allowed to say all that much on Sullivan and Son, but I do say some stuff. And part of it is that I'm competing in a very, very, very competitive marketplace where there's lots and lots and lots of stuff on and lots and lots of stuff on cable. And I have to constantly make sure – I mean I got I to gotta scoop up you know, one and a half, two million people every night and find them wherever they are. And I've got about a million, million, a million two of those viewers uh, every week are loyal and stick with us. But even that is not – Something you can take to the bank because you lose people. You know, they once did a survey of people. They asked them what their favorite show was, and whatever it was, and uh, they'd say, "This is your favorite show." And they say, "Yeah, but I, I love the show. I never miss an episode." And they'd quiz them on what happened in recent episodes, and it turns out that even a show that you say that you love, you really only watch about half of them to one third of them, just because you know people have lives. They actually they miss stuff, and so. I, I, you work very hard, and you try to you try to be surprising and different. And um, yes, occasionally that does mean that we use uh, language that's um, and, and situations that are a little bit racy. And I would say I would say we use dirty words. Uh, that's horrifying. Horrifying. <laughs> well, unless you're using look- dirty words. No, but it's an interesting. Here's the interesting question. About this, and there's no answer, which is, can you have a culture that does not essentially coarsen itself out of existence if it becomes acceptable for, you know, a show – okay, so TBS is basic cable, which means effectively it's in almost every home in the United States, I believe, right? Sort of like broadcast television, pretty close. So – you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you would never have been allowed to even show two people in a bed together, right? Now you can use words that 10 years ago couldn't have been used on broadcast television. And the question is, obviously, it's not the cause, but is it a symptom? I don't know the answer. Is it a symptom of well, what ails us or is it nothing or is this just I don't you know, know if it's prudishness and Mrs. Grundyism and all of that? No, I don't know if it's nothing. But I, I, I do think that if you go to an R-rated movie and you don't – and you're offended by it, uh, you're an idiot, right? You went to an R-rated movie. Um, you paid the money, you sat there. You know what an R-rated movie is. Well, it depends what you're offended by. If you're offended by the bad language, yeah, you're an idiot, right? Depending about how bad it is, that's slightly different. Yeah. Yeah, or, or if it does, if it, if, if the point, I mean, you can, you can be offended on an artistic level about the mess, you know, like if, if it's a movie that turns out that it's wildly pro incest, you can be offended by that without being Comstockish, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just pulled that one out of the hat there, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Just say it's a, a, a little screenplay I've been working on. Uh, um, <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, okay, but but I, I guess what I mean is right now there's a very sort of uh, timid and, and I think that's that's partly part of the networks they they try to make it timid, a timid and kind of obscure way of rating television, and it's, that's what we're going to have to go to because the idea that we're going to we have prime, prime time doesn't exist, the idea that it does is really kind of silly. There's no reason to. To, to continually refer to a broadcast television universe where there are three or four networks, there aren't. Uh, and, and, and TV comes more and more over the pipe, and it comes more and more over a pipe that's really connected to the web. And so the difference between television and web is, is, abs- is completely eroding. Um, and, you know, we get about a 20% ratings bump from, from time shifters, from what they call DVR plus seven. So people who, who watch, watch an episode seven days, up to seven days later. They have it on their DVR. They watch seven days later. So people are people are taking control of what the programming is coming in over the over the the television. The way they're taking control of the stuff coming in over the internet. Now they may feel that there's too much garbage and they're not they don't have the tools to control it. I think that's probably true, and it's not really in the financial interests of the networks to give you all of to, to put a label on Sullivan and Son that says we make a lot of smutty jokes. It's really not for everyone. Um, I, I think I think all of this is true. The one proviso or the one problem that is posed by this whole notion, which which effectively means that self governance has now become the order of the day in mass entertainment, just as it is in politics or in political life or something like that. People can choose; they can build their own. They're no longer you know beholden to you know to to simply passively taking what is offered them. The one difference here is when it comes to children and and young people because, of course, then you have the problem of seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds who can get access to things that they w- that previously the entire culture was constructed to build right. a wall so that the innocent would not have would not have their innocence tarnished. Right. Right. And now we actually have no interest in that whatsoever. And uh, now we have the interesting controversy that's now going on in England where uh, de- the law has been passed uh, along the lines actually of something that Jonah has been talking about for 15 years, effectively to force people to opt in to internet porn. In other words, the default settings in England of browsers and what, how this works, I don't quite understand. But it will be that you will not have access to internet porn unless you opt in. It's not that you will have to somehow opt out or create a blocker that will make it impossible for your browser to go there. That will be the default setting. And some people are complaining about this. Years ago, Jonah proposed this notion that there needed to be two internets, effectively. Yeah. So that the internet Nobody, for by the kids, way, nobody believed Jonah was really serious. Well, <laughs> you know, but check, check his browser history, John. Is there, is there, oh, under no, under, be under no delusion that he wants this to happen. Well, no, 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 no. But, but uh, no matter how dark and depraved my browser history may be, you know, um, it may be... Let's stipulate that my browser history is like <laughs> looking into the Ark of the Covenant at the end of the Raiders oh, of the yeah. Lost Ark. God, okay. It's like Rod Steiger's dream journal. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, wow. There's that's a an reference. Old, yeah, that's an old Dennis Miller joke. I've always wanted oh, to it's steal good. it. It's good. It's good. good. Um, um, but I, would, I don't want my daughter seeing that, right? And my whole, my, the whole idea that I came up with uh, with a buddy of mine, uh, Nick Schultz, was that you know, 
one of the things, you know, Steve Jobs, one of the reasons why he liked keeping the iTunes store, the app store, self-contained was that in the Mac universe, you were basically free from porn. He wanted to treat it like a really nice gated community or uh, uh, a really nice mall like the Grove in L.A. or something, right, where you had to have a certain caliber and a certain quality before you could get in. And I, my idea is simply it's, it's not so much to censor anything for adults. It's to find safe havens for kids. Right. And if you have an internet – my idea was to have an internet domain called .kids that basically made it – and corporations would love it. They would flock to it. Sure. People would put stuff on there. And the only rule would be that it had to be profoundly age-appropriate. And that way you could have kids – You know, when I give kids computers. Everyone wants to give kids – you know, get kids into the information age. Most of the internet could be mirrored on the .kids domain. With the few exceptions that you couldn't get the porn over there. And, um, and so it wouldn't so much be censoring anything for adults. It would be actually creating a little sort of gated community that maybe a lot of adults wouldn't want any interest to go into. But have kids' laptops, basically, or kids' browsers made so that they could only search the .kids domain and can't sure. get out. And that's sort of my – look, I, I'm, I'm with you, Rob, on a lot of this. Um, I am – you know, the line that keeps coming to mind is I think it's from Rousseau where he says censorship is, is useful for retaining morals, but it's useless for restoring them, right? And the idea is, is that whatever, you know, whatever use censorship has or uh, prudery in popular culture, the problem is, is that, you know, the horses are out of the barn already. And if you try to sort of turn Sullivan and Sons into PG instead of PG-13, <laughs> You're not gonna you're not gonna improve the lot of American culture. You're just gonna chase yeah. away some viewers. And right. we get angry angry calls from the American Express Corporation wondering where their, where their money is. Yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah, but to be fair, I mean, I just interrupt you for one second. To be fair to uh, Ricochet member Adrian, uh, at no point did he suggest censorship. He was very clear. He actually wrote a wonderful response, very very thoughtful, funny, witty uh, response. To my response on my post, which is a member feed, uh, yes. So the guy, I mean, you know, not a prude. These are these are not prudes. These are not uh, blue stockings who are uh, you know offended by everything. Um, uh, it was just really more of like a good lord, uh, really. Do I need to hear that those words at uh, you know just suddenly um, over the top? And and um, and I I, I understand that because you know <laughs> shows listen, over the top. Listen, there are two other there are two other interesting aspects of this. One of which is that you know pornography is the you know is a is a sort of a, a grotesque, horrible, terrible thing. In, in when they do it ways. right, in many <laughs> ways, well, only when it's really good. <laughs> but in the last twenty years, pornography has been responsible in a way that people simply do not quite understand the degree to which this is the case for creating e-commerce. Much of the uh, security protocols, a lot of the security protocols that made Amazon.com possible were created by the move of porn into the Internet and the need even for pornographers to assure their customers discretion that if they were going to buy things over the Internet, that their credit card wouldn't be stolen, that that it would be protect, there would be protection and all this. And this, this dark market that nobody knows anything about created systems 
that have made it possible for us to get you know books in two seconds. Um, well, from there's Amazon. No, there is absolutely no doubt that porn, the, the porn business, has colonized and subsidized the d- development of a huge a huge amount of new technology and new entertainment. I mean, poor Bob Crane, you know, who played Hogan in Hogan's Heroes, who was a porn freak, an amateur porn freak. He would uh, – when he traveled around the country, he would lug around these uh, huge amounts of video equipment. I mean it's basically <laughs> – like you know, that, it was heavy. It was like five suitcases fit in the – barely fit. He'd have rents, big cars and the pickup trucks and stuff. I mean the guy – to be a porn freak back then, you, you made a commitment. I mean you, you were making a commitment to, to just the equipment uh, and now you just – it's your, your, it's in your phone. Not only in your phone, but you have editing tools in your phone. Uh, so, and that became and so. So anyway, so he he, it, it was people's interest in in watching pornography that created the home video market, and uh, and then you're right, it did, did create e-commerce and was really one of the, for a long time one of the only businesses on the web making any money. Um, and and if you're if you're in the entertainment business as I am, if you, you watch the porn business because they're usually first. Uh, uh, with technology and they're first with business the, the first opening businesses right so if you were making regular movies in, in the 70s you knew that home video was going to be big because it was already big in the porn business mm-hmm. uh, and if you're in the movie business now you know the DVD business is over because it's over in the porn business <laughs> and you know that it's over for a lot of other kinds of entertainment because um, the porn business is having huge huge trouble um maintaining its sort of corporate structure. Uh, and people also forget, you know, one of the other interesting aspects here is that is that the American streetscape, not just in cities but all over the place, was purified by the fact that porn migrated to the web. I mean, New York City, if you look at photographs of New oh, York yeah. City in the in the 1970s, New York City was overrun by by movie theaters that were converted to porn houses, not just in Times Square, all over the place. And the creation of these store, you know, there were two kinds of stores on every corner in New York City. One was a Korean deli and the other was a porn shop with Pakistanis running it. <laughs> and that was everywhere. And then there was a big fight. Rudy Giuliani, they figured out how to pass a zoning law that met, that said you couldn't have a, a, a porn distribution store within 500 feet of a school. And when 19 different judges said that was acceptable, the business effectively shut down. It also shut down because there was net because who would walk into some you know store where you could be seen by a friend of yours on the street when you could just go, you know, to a to a place on the web and order movies through the mail or or download right. them or or stream them and watch them online. So in an right, odd Jonah? way, this has been a great. <laughs> This has been a great thing. He's so silent. Yeah, it's well, silent no, that, sense. It, well, yeah. Look, it's it's uh, it it's it's interesting. Also, I mean, the point I was wanted to make earlier about that the other group that has always sort of been out front and ahead on communications technology, not as much as the porn industry, but sort of in a distant second, Al Qaeda, the conservatives. Okay, you know, I, I said Al Qaeda, so I, you know, that's that's third, maybe. That's third, yeah. Um, you know, there's this, you know, I, you really should download Al Qaeda's new Inspire app. It's awesome. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the, uh, you know, the conservatives, whether it was talk radio or direct mail, you know, 
they had sort of the same sort of sort of an analog problem to what the porn industry had is that you weren't allowed to go through normal channels, so you had to be creative with sort of alternative channels, and you had the sort of same thing. It's interesting though, you know. There's, um, but there's there's still this sort of. I mean, there, forget porn for a second. I mean, um, there's there's still. I still think it's perfectly legitimate to talk about the coarsening of the culture. And it's perfectly legitimate to want to do some things about it. I mean, one of my great abiding peeves, Rob, maybe you can do something about this, is that even on the um, uh, the entirely kid-friendly networks, right, like ABC, Family Channel, or Nickelodeon, all that kind of stuff, the shows are fine, and my kid watches a lot of them. And then you get these commercials that are for late-night ABC programming or right. for R-rated movies and or for the parents watching. And so you'll get Viagra ads sometimes on, you know, yeah. kids programming. And, and you know, people who say to adult, you know, I, I, I understand the libertarian argument and, and I think John puts his finger on it exactly right. The problem is children, right? I mean, libertarianism is the single greatest philosophy ever created except for two weak spots, children and foreign policy. <laughs> and if you didn't have either of those, yeah. libertarianism would be it for me. But, um, you know, you have people who say, oh, it's up to parents to watch their kids and to be in charge. And, you know, people talk about family values. Well, you, what, you should be in charge of your own kids. I agree with a lot of that. But as John can probably attest, you know, you think you're in a safe zone when you have your kid watching Nickelodeon or Family Channel. And then all of a sudden this commercial comes on for some nighttime soap opera on ABC where you see women kissing and you see, you know, or you, or you see a commercial for like Ring 30,012, whichever number they're up to now, or yeah. Saw, and you're like, am I supposed to like be – it's not enough that I have my kids watching only these channels. I actually have to monitor the commercials too, and there's a, yeah. there's a million examples of that kind of thing where you really can't protect your kids from the broader culture, and I think that's a shame. Right, and there's here's another example. This is a New York-specific example, but it will be the case everywhere, one way or another, with with video and cars and stuff like that. Which is so in New York City, there. But by there the way, now we passive, know you're in New York City. Yeah, but there's passive television. Thank you very much. Oh, you hear it? Yeah, yeah we can hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, there it's you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, actually, actually, it's not real. I, I that's part of my New York City app, which is you're watching awesome. old Kojak. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, so New York City taxi cabs have this passive television system now. You get in the cab, and the TV goes on, and they and each channel, Channel Seven has some of them, Channel Four has some, Channel Two has some of them, have newscasts in the taxi. And you're sitting there with your six-year-old in a taxi, and it says, you know, Anthony Weiner sent sexting with, you know, woman, not his wife, or something like that. And then my daughter says to me, what is sexting? I'm like, gee, thanks. Like, I I just got into a taxi cab. I don't want to talk to my daughter about sexting. You are not permitted to make me talk to my daughter about, like, I, I'm wait, doing wait. everything I can to make sure that I control her environment. And then I step into a taxi cab with her and, and suddenly I'm being forced to have these conversations. That's what happened with Clinton in 98. I mean, that was where people were turning off the TV when it was on the evening news, like they were, like their kid walked in and found them watching porn. It's exactly the same thing. It's like, up, oh, but uh, what is the president doing, mommy? You know, 
What did he do on the blue gap dress? Yeah. You know, yeah. why should you have to talk about that in relation to the president? So this is where this is where you cannot create you the argument that you know, parents are responsible falls down because it's it's just ambient in the culture. There is no way to shut it off. Well, it's slightly unless different. you totally shut it off unless you live like Amish, yeah. you don't have a television, you just put classical music on the radio. And you're not yeah. on an Amish themed reality show. There are now like seven. It's a slightly it's slightly different, I think. Um and, and this might be a weird distinction, right? It's slightly different to put on smutty little TV on after ten that's labeled as such. On a channel, I mean, for, I mean, I'm, now I'm, I'm making excuses for myself. On a channel that also has Family Guy on it and a bunch of other things, right? That's clearly designed to, you know, it's a comedy channel with some comedy that's risque and it's going to have, you know, two broke girls on it, which is a lot more risque than anything we do, frankly. Um, and that's on CBS, so it's like uh, I, I get it, but that that's 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 different. I mean, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I'm not trying to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to catch a dime here. Just trying to get two million people to turn on the TV. But on the other way, let me on the other side, the other side, you're like a, 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 a station called ABC Family. Oof. That it's called ABC Family, and Jonah thinks he was watching a promo on ABC Family for a show that he didn't want on another network that he didn't want his kids to watch. That was not. That was probably a trailer for for the next show on ABC Family. <laughs> ABC Family is a, is, is a surprising – even people who work at ABC Family, I know a few of them are like, oh, we got to change that name, man. We are not. Well, you know but, why it's called ABC Family? Who's, who owned ABC Family before ABC bought it? Pat Robertson. remember? Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson sold ABC Family for a billion dollars to ABC and it is now – it's now basically like softcore porn for teenagers. Well, or, or, and, girls. and that's slightly different. Now you're talking about people who believe that what they're putting on is not just, oh, some kids may watch this. Um, they think it's good for kids. That's the difference. I think there's a difference between incidental brushing up against the coarsening of the culture. Now here I'm trying to make an excuse for myself, right? I'm not aiming this at kids. I don't think – I mean I don't think kids are going to think the jokes are funny. Um and people who are doing a kids' channel who think, no, I actually think that it's good for kids to see two girls kissing. I actually think sexually suggestive stuff is good for kids because we're, we're going to teach them all sorts of things – to teach them certain attitudes we want them to have before you get to them, Jonah. And Maybe I'm paranoid, but I, I kind of believe that deep down that's part of the motivation. Well, I think, it's, I think that's explicitly the case. Like I was reading an interview this weekend – with Jesse Tyler Ferguson of Modern Family and Eric McCormick, who played Will on Will and Grace. And they were talking about the, you know, cultural impact of their shows because, you know, of course, Eric McCormick played a a gay man and Jesse Tyler Ferguson is a gay man who plays a gay man. And on on Modern Family, uh, you know, this happy couple. And um, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, here's the quote. Uh... He said, Ty Burrell, who gives this genius performance on Modern Family as the sort of clueless dad, one of the great comic performances of our time, Ty Burrell calls shows like ours Trojan horses because you sneak in there and make people feel comfortable. And then maybe you show a little bit of an agenda. 
and the audience is acclimated to it at a very comfortable rate. So this thing that Joe Biden said about Will and Grace being, you know, the uh, deeply influential show because it made uh, gay, you know, made it made homosexuality much more comfortable to a mass audience. This is now explicit. So the Trojan horse strategy on, you know, on sort of on, on, on gay matters has obviously worked. The question is, where's the Trojan horse strategy used elsewhere? What other Trojan horse strategies will there be? What else will be humanized in right. this fashion? Um, and obviously we know politically there are plenty of Trojan horses where you sneak in enviro messages and you do this and you do that and you do the other thing. But, you know, the question is, you know, at what point will uh, polygamy have a, have a Trojan horse show? Or, you know, uh, not to be Rick Santormish, yeah. but, you know, man on man and dog together have a Trojan well, horse show. We know that Jonah's working on his incest. <laughs> so when's that, when's that coming out? Yeah. Well, the, the uh, uh, you know, the funny thing, though, I, let's talk about that Will and Grace thing for a second. You know, when, when Biden said that. What was interesting was I thought it what it really showed was how unbelievably dated Joe Biden was. And because the the modern family, the Trojan horse in modern family is so vastly um preferable to the the one that's in Will and Grace because the one in Will and Grace, right? I bet you if if trends continue in 50 years people will look back on that Will and Grace show and they will see it as the sort of you know, step and fetch it or blackface of, yeah. of of gay culture. It's I mean the 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 gay comedic relief guy. What's that guy's name? Um, Sean, Sean Hayes. Hayes. Yeah, I mean uh, he's like a he would be considered a homophobic character if cast today. And oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't modern know. family. Modern family makes is an is basically itself like a minstrel show about a gay couple. I mean, it, because it is so politically, but it is so politically correct that it has freed itself to turn one of the two, you know, gay guys into this kind of screaming yeah. queen, and yeah. the other to be this tight, you know, uptight, too prissy, you know, like one is Franklin Pangborn, the the sissy <laughs> yeah. from the 1930s, <laughs> right? That's Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and the uh, and the other is uh, I don't know who the other is. Like the other is Fatty Arbuckle or something like that. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just so I think they I think they made it possible just as they have you know the world's uh, hottest sex pot Latina as the as as the second wife on the show, so they can make stupid Latina jokes. You know, so she's like Charo, a politically correct Charo. They, right. They've liberated themselves by being political. I think this is actually Maybe. very canny because if it were too political, the show wouldn't be funny at all. And yeah, it I, really is funny. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I hate to defend Joe Biden here, but every, uh, but I, I actually think that Will and Grace, uh, you're right, it will look dated. It is a dated artifact. You look back on it now, I think you think, oh, good Lord. Um, but I suspect for a, a huge uh, a huge portion of young people who sort of came, gay young people who came of age roughly around that time, it was, an, I mean, it was an amazing watershed. Yeah, but I'm not talking about for gay people. I'm talking about for straight people. Well, it was, enough, it, was a, it was a huge, huge hit. It was a huge hit. It was and an enormous, it, yeah, it was an enormous and, and, and hit. And just to have it, have it in the living room and have it, and, and uh, obviously Sean Hayes was a comic character in Extreme, and you, you need that. Uh, but the Eric McCormack wasn't, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I but you know, I, it's, I it's like this, this question case, about yeah. 
But it's like this question about Obama and Cosby, which is, could you have Barack Obama without the Cosby show? Or the fact that the Cosby show was the phenomenon that it was in the 1980s, the last television program that was watched regularly by 40 million people a week um, in the United States, you know, the number one show for five years in a row, something like that. Um, Or was the fact that Cosby happened in the 80s was itself indicative of an American cultural change that Obama simply was the fulfillment of 20 years after Cosby went off the air. But it's very hard to know. That's how pop culture works. Pop culture either reflects the change or it both reflects it and helps move it, inch it forward, as 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 Jesse Taylor Ferguson and Ty Burrell right. said. It, it, it's like – it's a catalytic effect, right? I mean there's that – line from Orwell I use a lot where he says it's sort of a reverse point but a man can be a failure and therefore take the drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks the the Cosby show was mm-hmm. a product of the culture and it also changed the culture by being a product of the culture and you can't to, you can't get into this was it one or the other thing because it was both right I mean and I think um, and that's true of a lot of things that you know you have these path-breaking pioneer moments that become mainstream, but they were only possible because the culture was moving in that direction in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the Cosby Show didn't make an audience. The Cosby Show premiered to a 40 share. Right. No one, no one America didn't say, hey, wait a minute, we're willing to accept this. They accepted it in, in the first 11 minutes. And Nielsen right. Box re- re- reflected that. They, they knew Bill Cosby really well. He was the extraordinarily – I think he was the most successful pitchman in America. He had been a, a TV star for 20 years. Um, the show itself was sort of incre- effortless. I mean that pilot is effortless. And he also did something – that pilot is really interesting because he did something – um, shocking in that pilot, which is that he had for the first time in years, he had the par- the parents being smart and the kids being dumb and lazy. And he had a, ki- a parent yelling at a kid in the pilot for right. not, not working hard enough in school. And people watched that and loved it. And they fell in love with him as a parent. Um, and that was a big, big, big deal. And he said also – yeah, he subverted a whole – there's a whole cliche about family shows. He totally subverted it. It was fantastic. It was also a lift from you know, an incredibly finely honed stand-up routine that he had been doing yeah. about his family and his kids. You know? I mean so I, mean, right. I agree. The, the one point I was trying to lead to with the Biden thing before, you know, as always, Rob Long leaped into the <laughs> show Biden um, was the place where I take great offense. And I, I, I like Modern Family. I think it's a great show and I think – that it's a wonderful thing that at least the gay characters on that are treated as an incredibly bourgeois yeah. figures, you know. Um, but the um, the thing I was leading to is what I do take great offense to, which I don't think we've talked about on this on this podcast, is um, the New Yorker cover of Bert and Ernie. And there you have what I think is one of the real sort of disturbing things in popular culture that you get from a lot of this stuff, which is the sexualization of everything, right? And so you had that right. New Yorker cover of Burton Ernie um, with their sort of heads touching each other like they were cuddling on the couch, seeing the news about the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. And, you know, it's been a joke by a lot of people for a long time about Burton Ernie being gay. You know, they live together and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so here you had the this sort of, intrusion into the one of the purest 
areas of children's lives, which is Sesame Street, which is the sort of my idea of dot kids taken to sort of saccharine heights and sexualizing the relationship of what are supposed to be two little kids. On a, and the characters are based on the friendship of Frank Oz and Jim Henson and saying that's about a, a gay relationship. And I would have been just as offended if Bert and Ernie had been, you know, Bert and Ethel, and they turned that into a sexual relationship. There's some places that are supposed to be sort of devoid of that kind of thing and purely innocent and about, about childhood. And so much of what, you know, it's sort of like my one criticism of the, of the Christopher Guest movies, which I love, you know, um, particularly things like, um, like Best in Show where it's fine to make fun of people who own dogs and who are crazy about their dogs, but does it have to be a version of their sexual perversion? You know, <laughs> does it have to be sort of their sexual obsessions playing themselves out in pet ownership? Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think is really bad with the culture is that everything is given this sort of sexual valence. Touched a nerve there. That- yeah. Okay. <laughs> So as we as we approach the end of this uh, of this, of the, of of this podcast and and civilization and before <laughs> this may be the last time that we're talking because the flood may hit and the apocalypse mm. may take place and I don't no, think no, any we'll of still us, do, I don't we'll think any of tongues. us is getting raptured any of us is getting raptured I'm sorry to tell you oh wait uh, speaking I, of rapture one quick thing you'll like this there's a bumper yes. sticker there's a bumper sticker that says warning this car will swerve in case of rapture. No, in, case, in case of rapture, this car will swerve as my mother-in-law leans over to grab the wheel. <laughs> That's good. Wow. That's good. But you've got to be traveling pretty close to read but that. Since, <laughs> since none of us is going to be raptured and since obviously really good people don't speak ill of the dead, I think we are going now to confess that we are flawed uh, Americans and human beings and spend a couple of minutes discussing Helen Thomas. The, uh, the di- died at ninety two, uh, famous trailblazing woman reporter at the White House, and uh, Jonah. I was delighted to see that after a couple of days of rapturous coverage of Helen Thomas and her trailblazing ways, that you had finally had enough and <laughs> let her have it between with both. Let her corpse have it with both barrels. Um, I will join you, but I just wanted to let you uh, reflect on some of that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, in my defense, I, as I mentioned on Twitter, I waited. I mean, I tried not to do to pounce yeah. on her right. too much, but um, the pro- part of the problem is, is like, she's dead. When is she going to be back in the news? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like either either you use this news peg to tell the truth about the woman, or you'll just you got to let the lies live forever. And you know, uh, Helen Thomas was. It, you know, let me be as fair about this as I can be. An awful human being. <laughs> and, um, by the way, by the way, she was an awful human being, not just because <laughs> she was an anti-Semite, and not just because she behaved in appallingly rude, repulsive fashion at White House press briefings. She was an awful human being because the people that she worked with at UPI, she treated horribly because she took all this credit for being a trailblazing person who literally could not write her name without having a rewrite guy have to write Helen Thomas for her because she was illiterate. And she was a really vile, unpleasant, nasty person. I yeah, I mean, her. that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it, she's, she is a, a troll-shaped pinata. You can hit her from any angle and ooze black 
so fewer yeah. ooze will pour out. And she was, uh, you know, and you know, and uh, full disclosure, you know, my dad, who had business relations with UPI, who passed away eight years ago, and my mom, who was a women's news service correspondent in Washington D.C. during the golden age of Helen Thomas and all that kind of stuff, my parents knew Helen Thomas going back. 50 years and I've been hearing stories from her from them and their friends about what a nasty piece of work she is my entire life and she had all of her books ghost written you know uh, she had most all of her columns rewritten because she was as John says uh, at, at the best she could aspire to was a hack and um, and and this woman is I mean it's bizarre to me how she got so lionized it's amazing how basically feminism, Trumps first of all being a bad person, and second of all being a rabid anti-Semite, and you know, and, and let the, the Helen Thomas defenders you know take note. It wasn't that she just simply hated Israel, which she did. She really just didn't like Jewish people, um, and she certainly didn't like Jewish people who liked Israel, which is most Jews. <laughs> um, and. Uh, and I just think it was really fascinating how nobody was willing – I mean why it should fall to me to beat the crap out of Alan Thomas um, is very strange. I got a lot of interesting email and text messages from some pretty prominent Washington liberal journalist types who said, thank God someone said it. Yeah, well, it's always nice when they do that because, you know, it shows their great courage and being able to come out and, <laughs> you know, know, violate know. their own – no? I don't, I don't know. I mean uh... – uh, she was always nice to me. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, if you were, uh, I'm, that I'm just, just to, proves you didn't it, know her because she was nice out, to anybody. If you were hanging out and you want to see a movie, you nobody see it with. You could just send her, "Hey, Helen, you want to grab a movie? Maybe a bite after." You know, and she was always up for it. She was, she was always down. So, no, she was. <laughs> she was because you know, if a Jew made it, she just wanted the movie. She wanted the movie to go back to Germany and Poland in the 1930s. That's <laughs> well, that was her. You know, why are problem. we seeing this Jewish propaganda that, that, when that was you know, a, they that could was be a making problem. it in Poland? That's why we stopped going out because they kept saying, "Hey, Helen, every movie from Hollywood has Jews involved." Okay, you can't go through the. We can't go through the crawl before we see the movie. Ah, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. bad. But of course, the truth is she had a second life because she was really nasty to George Bush during the run up to the Iraq war. That's the answer. The answer is if she had gone into retirement in 2000 when she should have when UPI was basically taken over by the Washington Times and she quit and if Hearst hadn't hired her and if she wasn't sitting there at the White House yelling slanderous nonsense at George W. Bush that thrilled Daily Coast and people like that. She would have been forgotten by the time of her death. So and she the way, made she, herself yeah. famous again, and then she made herself infamous again because of the because of the foul filth that came out of her mouth about Jews, and had to quit again. And then she died long enough after that happened that people could say, "Oh, she was such a trailblazer," and all this. I mean, if she's a trailblazer, that trail was poisoned by the fact that she blazed it. So there were a lot of other people who were plenty better trailblazers. Nancy Dickerson, who was, you know, who was a great reporter. Uh, you know, even somebody like Eleanor Clift, who I'm not that fond of, but was somebody who, like, fought her way up from being a secretary at, you know, at, at Newsweek to becoming a full reporter when it was really, really hard to have that happen. Or, you know, a whole bunch of people. Mary Lou Forbes, who won a Pulitzer at the Washington at the at the uh, at the Washington Star, you know, again somebody who like really had to scramble to get herself a byline because women weren't getting bylines in the 1950s. There were a lot better people 
to celebrate than than Helen Thomas, um, and who don't didn't get celebrated on their death because they didn't they didn't slander the United States and its president in the run up to a war. But that's the thing, you know, the pretty girl gets the attention, John. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, we will, we'll, we will end on this note. Science fiction history was made uh, this week when it was announced that NBC would make a miniseries about Hillary Clinton in which Hillary Clinton would be played by 1980s sex pot Diane Lane. Now, <laughs> wow. that would be like casting George Clooney to play me. So, well, of course, Helen Thomas is dead, so you can't get her. Well, they, they wanted Annette Benning to play Helen Thomas in something. Well, Annette Benning, <laughs> Annette Benning would be a better Hillary than Diane Lane. But, I mean, the whole notion of Diane Lane, who was literally the sexiest person alive. A little romance, remember that? In her 20s. Oh, a little twenty. That was when she was 12. She was yeah. fantastic. But, I mean, in the 80s, she was in these – she was unbelievably – and then she got – and then she made this movie uh, – with uh, Richard Gere, uh, yeah, 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 uh, uh, unfa- unfaithful. Anyway, she is just, you know, the definition of hot as a pistol. And I would say Hillary Clinton and the phrase "hot as a pistol" really not really in the same sentence. What's or the even I would God's... say, but I'm bum. All right, yeah, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Be here, all, be here all week. Try the prime Speaking rib. Of which, <laughs> Speaking of which, Jonah and Rob, where will you be uh, in the month of August, where people can uh, see you and um, well, to, uh, on Tuesday, I am speaking at the big uh, YAF conference here in Washington, D.C. And on Wednesday, I am flying uh, to Amsterdam to board the National Review Cruise, where I will join Rob Long and people in cruisers. We will be able to hear our comedic stylings on at least yep. one panel. That's right. That's right. I'll be there. And I was supposed to be on that cruise. I was supposed to be on that cruise with you. What? what But I had to cancel. I had to cancel because my my nephew is getting married in in Israel, despite Helen Thomas's efforts to destroy his country. My nephew will be will my nephew alone, um, who is a who is a remarkable young man, will be getting married on Thursday in Israel. And I had to I had to cancel out of the National Review cruise because he announced his marriage. And then, of course, I, I also have to rush back because I will be at, uh, at Snortles and, and Chuckles <laughs> in West Nyack, New York, as usual, uh, with my, my comedy stylings while you are cruising down the, the, you know, the Volga or wherever, wherever you're cruising down, uh, doing your late-night comedy routine for the National Review cruisers. So. Uh-huh. And- that's and Rob, that's where I will appear. We're going to yes. be cruising. We're going to be cruising the fjords, which, as we know from Ron Burgundy, Ron Burgundy is a sort of a soft J, like in yogging. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and Rob uh, Sullivan and Sons, uh, get it, getting another plug here at the end of the Thank podcast. You. Thursdays you. at ten with a lot of dirty words. Thursdays at ten, lots uh, of smutty situations on CBS. Think funny. Yeah, think funny. Or I think it's called uh, very funny, but I very funny. Your, I'm sorry, but that. think think funny would actually funny be anyway. better. Been very funny. You can tell them that, and they can use it and not pay me for it. I will tell them, and they will not use it. And uh, I will also be, you know, if you, if you think if you think uh, Sullivan Son is coursing the culture, just wait until I do my FX project, which I'm shooting in New York in September. So I will see you. I will see you in person, Joe. Maybe we should do. You will it see me in person. I'm going to be. That's yeah. going to be so exciting, and I'm going to come to. I'm going to come to the set, and I I'm going to. I'm going to go tisk whenever Tracy Morgan curses, and you're going to give me notes. I, I was going to give you notes. I'd say, like, you know, I really think <gasps> that that line needs to be funnier. Can we punch this up? <laughs> I 
you know, that's what I do as an editor. I just send people, I send their article back and I say, can you just make this better? Just uh, anything but this. <laughs> I mean, it's really great, but could it be good now? <laughs> yeah. uh, so you guys There's, have a great time. Is there a way to soften this? You guys have a great time on the cruise. Thank you. Everybody guys. listening, have a great August, and we'll uh, we'll be back to you soon. See you soon. See you, fellas. A big parade is so inspiring. Oh, I'm glad I'm not an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I never want to be. Because if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, there would soon be nothing left of me. Oh, I love to be Oscar Mayer wieners are all meat, all good meat, rich in complete meat protein, mildly seasoned to bring out all the good meat flavor. Everyone would be in love with me. Next week, you handle just the refreshments, Freddy. Ricochet. <laughs> Join the conversation.